continue our study. Jesus is the vine, the followers are branches, the Father is the vine dresser. In chapter 13 and 14, primarily what Christ has done and is doing for his disciples. Chapter 15, how we follow him, what we are to do, bearing fruit. And again, this quote from A.W. Pink in chapter 13 and 14, it is the freeness and fullness of divine grace. In 15, it is our responsibility to bear fruit. The passages for our background, we recall, were Psalm 80 and Ezekiel chapter 15. Six points we had from last week. As we consider John 15, verse 1 through 5, let's just look at that very quickly. Chapter 15 of John, beginning in verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And we remember that there is the designated vine, and that indeed is Jesus Christ. The distinguishable branches that are mentioned the branches that are in Christ, and in those branches that are in Christ, those are the true branches and those that are, get cast away. And then the divine pruning process from God the Father, the vine dresser, and that we are distinctively clean because of the word which he has spoken to us, and we are ongoingly cleansed by the word of God in our sanctification. And we dwell in union with Christ, And we are devoid without Christ. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. So we have seen two parts of his teaching thus far. The teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ in John 15. God providing for us in his Son, Jesus, the true vine. The Father is the vine dresser, divine pruning process that continues on of the branches. And it's a painful process at times. And then thirdly, which we will look at this morning primarily, has to do with the branches. These branches which are to bear fruit. And of course there are two branches as I just mentioned. Branches that bear fruit and branches that do not bear fruit that he takes away. So as we approach verse 6 and 7 this morning, the condition has already, have already been presented. To be a branch that bears fruit, one must be in Christ, in union with Christ. And to be a branch that bears fruit, the purging and pruning action has been and continues to be in place by the vine dresser, the Father. And to be a branch that bears fruit, thirdly, one must abide or remain in Christ. It is the third that is the responsibility of the Christian, and that is much much of the focus of chapter 15, and that will be much of our focus this morning. I will ask God to help me this morning once again. Father, I come before you once again in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. We have prayed much this morning. We continue to pray this morning. Uh, We need to pray this morning. We need you, God. I need you. 
I am nothing without you. As I stand behind this pulpit, I am a weak man. I need strength from the Holy Spirit of God. I pray indeed that you would give me that strength today for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So our first point this morning, remaining or removing. Remaining or removing. That really is the gist of it all. If anyone does not abide in me, verse 6, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, or as a branch that withers, as James chapter 1, verse 11 would say. And they gather them. These They are the servants of the vine dresser. And cast them into the fire, and they are burned. <clears throat> five action steps. Five descriptions we see here. If anyone does not abide in me, says Christ, this is Jesus speaking as we know, he is thrown away, dried up, will be gathered, will be cast into fire, and will be burned. Five action steps or five descriptions. Then we see this word abide. We've seen it again and again. To abide is to dwell or to remain. J.C. Ryle helps us out with a definition. He says to abide in Christ means to keep up a habit of constant close communion with Christ, to always be leaning on Him, resting on Him, pouring out our hearts to Him, using Him as our fountain of life and strength, our chief companion and best friend. To have His words abiding in us is to keep His sayings and precepts continually before our minds and memories and to make them the guide of our actions and the rule of our daily conduct and behavior, close quote. So to abide in Christ is to rely on the Lord, our God, to rely on the love of the Word and the love of the Lord, our God. First John four sixteen, we have come to know and have believed that love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, as God abides in Him. So to abide, we draw near to God. We rely on Him, and we submit our lives to Him. Ongoing process. It's not a once we did that, and we abided in Him back in the day, and now we don't. No, it's ongoing. That's a responsibility for the Christian. In the New Testament, fire is used to describe the torment anguish and judgment of those who are without Christ who will endure the judgment of God for their sin. Again, when we consider the word hell, or we consider lake of fire, or we consider weeping and gnashing of teeth, we consider eternal judgment, that's not a popular thing and not a popular topic to discuss these days, to mention these days, to preach these days. Well, we, all we have to do is look to what Jesus said and no further. And we'll see, indeed, it was something that he mentioned, and he mentioned, and he preached on often. We consider other places in the Gospels where judgment is spoken of. A corresponding passage for us this morning is found in Matthew. So we're going to come back to John, but we want to go to Matthew chapter 13 at this time. Matthew chapter 13. A 
I'm hearing the pages turning. That is a good noise to hear. Matthew chapter 13. Look at verse 24. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore again, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you not want us then to go and gather them up? He said, No, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together into the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. And then we have in verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he said, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. For as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are the angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth His angels, and they will gather all of His kingdom, all stumbling blocks, and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire, In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There again, Jesus mentions the weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the weeds, or the tares, are the false professors. Those who profess to know Jesus Christ, uh, who do not know Christ. False converts. Those who say they have been converted, but are not. Those who are deceived, thinking they are converted, but are not. This is the same type of person of the branch that is cast out in John chapter 15. You can turn back to there to John 15 as I read these other passages for you. Matthew 3, 12, His winnowing fork is in His hand, and He will thoroughly clear His threshing floor, and He will gather His wheat into the barn, but He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Those who are guilty will go to the fiery hell in chapter 5, verse 22. In chapter 7, verse 19 of Matthew, every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So we'll see, we see time and time again, hell described as a personal and physical and unending torment of one who is without Christ. And we consider the context here of John 15. We remember who Jesus is speaking to primarily and what he is speaking about. 
Jesus is speaking of God's judgment specifically on professing believers who are not believers at all. Faith without works is dead faith, as it says in James. So we understand these descriptions, these responses of a branch that does not bear fruit is within professing Christianity. Not in the world that we can so easily judge out there, but within the doors of the church in here. We also see in the text that the branch is thrown out. It doesn't go away on its own. It's not a true branch. It is thrown away. Cast away. So there is a remaining of a branch and there is a removing of a branch. And everyone must reconcile with the question, which branch am I this morning? Secondly, there is reassuring communication. Reassuring communication. Verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Again, we have another if-then statement. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Whatever you want, ask. Ask is an imperative. It is a command. We are summoned to come to God to pray. We are invited to come to God to pray. And we are commanded to ask God of things in prayer. Ask with a promised result. It will be done. These are some powerful words. If we just consider this text, it should cause us to be a people of prayer. Saying, what God says will come to pass. And he says, come to me, pray to me, ask, and it will be done. If my words, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. Powerful words, not without conditions. Abiding in Christ involves, again, an intimate union and communion and harmony with Christ. Secondly, his words excuse me, his words, abiding in you as well. This is similar to John 14, verse 13 and 14. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, says the Lord, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. By way of another if-then. Here, through, though in chapter 15, the demand is that we must pray with his word abiding in us. As A.W. Pink said, Jesus is referring to a life that is regulated by the scriptures. It's not just someone who says, hey, I'm a Christian, I'm going to ask God whatever, and he's going to give it to me. Sounds a lot like the prosperity gospel which is a false gospel. If our life is regulated by the Scripture, we will pray according to God's will. And our goal of praying 
according to God's will. Abiding in him, his words abiding in us, aligning our will underneath his will, your will to be done, O God. If we do not abide in Christ, nor in his word, and not having his word abiding in us, we ought not to expect uh, power in our prayers. As a believer, abiding, I mean here, practically on the day-by-day living. The hour-by-hour living. Same with abiding in His Word. As believers, if we are abiding in His Word as believers, saturating our mind with the Scriptures, our desires that we will express in prayer will be cultivated and molded by His Word. Application for us. Quick application for us. Once again, our Perhaps we can be stuck in our prayer life, not knowing what to pray, not knowing how to pray. Solution, open up the Word of God, specifically, perhaps to the Psalms. Read it and pray it. Pray it back to God. Open up and start praying back to God what you are reading from the Word of God. Also, meditating on God's Word, meditating upon, meditating and memorizing God's Word, is helpful, beneficial, useful in our prayer times as well. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. A bold statement indeed, but we remember the if part. If you abide in me, and my words, he says, abide in you. Leon Morris says, When believers abide in Christ, and Christ's words abide in them, they live as close to Christ as well may be. Then their prayers will be prayed that are in accord with God's will, and they will be fully answered. Does that mean they're going to be fully answered as we want them all the time? Absolutely not. The way that we think it's going to be answered? Oftentimes not. But the way that God wants to answer our prayers. Just the fact that He answers our prayers alone, what a blessing. What a blessing that we get to pray to the God who created us. And only the child of God gets to do this. To pray to God, we have open communication with the great God of heaven. And he will answer our prayers as he desires to do so. Spurgeon, we cannot separate Christ from that word. For in the first place, he is the word. And in the next place, how Dare we call the Master and Lord, Him Master and Lord, and do not do the things which He says, and reject the truth which He teaches. We must obey His precepts, or He will not accept us. He will not accept us as His disciples. And we are told in Matthew 7 to ask, to seek, to knock, to continue coming to God in prayer. He already knows it anyway. He knows our heart. He knows all things. He knows what we need. He knows the desires of our heart. But he, he tells us to come to Him again and again and again and pray and pray and pray. So we have the fact of remaining or removing. We have the reassuring communication we have with God. And thirdly, we have representing royalty. Representing royalty. 
Again, who do we represent as Christians? We represent royalty. We represent the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Verse 8, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. My Father is glorified, he says. Bear much fruit, present tense. Keep on bearing much fruit. Abiding in Christ glorifies the Father. Become the goal, becoming rich fruit-producing disciples. Bearing much fruit glorifies the Father. We want to glorify God, do we not? Bear much fruit by the power of the Spirit. Bearing much fruit is an ongoing process. It proves, it shows that we are His disciples. The contrast, if we are superficial or careless about our abiding in Christ, we will also be more prone to lack the peace of God and will struggle with assurance of being in Christ. So the question, do you want to glorify God? The answer then is, then bear much fruit. God the Father is glorified in the work of Christ. God is glorified in the work of those who abide in the Son. Those who abide in the Son cannot bear fruit of themselves. Therefore, their fruit, their much fruit, is evidence of God's work in them. And thus, God is glorified. Showing yourself to be my disciples, says the Lord. In other words, the Father is glorified by them bearing fruit and continuing on as a disciple of Christ. And this proving process is a growing and developing walk with the Lord. Speaking of a proving process... When you raise kids and they go off to college, oftentimes that is a proving ground of their faith. They have been in the home in many ways, whether homeschool, public school, private school, no matter what type of school it is. But they have been under the shepherding of the home, whether the home is the model example of Christianity or not. And then they go off on their own, and indeed it is a proving ground to see whether indeed everything that they mouth from their parents, and they repeat it, and everything that they learned when they could leave the home, is it indeed true? Let's find out. And we pray that it is. Do we not? You think you pray now, parents. Be prepared to pray even more so when your children leave the home whether it be college or military or going astray. The proving ground, one proving ground. Also, we have redemptive love. Redemptive love. We are, as Christians, we represent royalty. We represent God. Let us, therefore, live that way. And then we have redemptive love. Just as the Father has loved me, says Jesus, I have loved you. Abide in my love. The command to continue on in his love. 
Well, we say, oh, who's he talking to? He's talking to disciples here, primarily. That is a primary audience. Remain in my love. A command. Do not presume. Do not say, okay, follow Jesus, and I just kick back now. No, remain in my love. His followers. And that includes us here this morning, those who are born again. And this is amazing, as Jesus says this, just as God the Father has loved the Son, Jesus Christ. Think of that inter-Trinitarian love between the, the triune God, specifically here between God the Father and God the Son. Just as the Father had loves Christ, Christ loves you, child of God. Amen to that. Praise God. Our love for Christ is because of Christ's love for us, which is couched in the Father's love for the Son. John 3.16 God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, for whoever believes on Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus says that His love for His, for his people is like the Father's love for Him. So we ought not live our Christian life in dread, in misery, like Eeyore, as if, as if God is constantly frowning at us and constantly disappointed with us, because that is simply not true. Christian, this morning, God loves you. You are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Does God show His love? Does God love a Christian different than those who are in the world? Absolutely, 100%. The Scripture teaches that. This particular love, this electing love that he has for the child of God. And that's, brothers and sisters, is what we benefit from. Ongoing, every day, day in, day out, since the time we were converted or chosen before the foundation of the world until eternity, never-ending love. And God delights to have fellowship with us, Christian, because he cares for us. This is a world we live in and just people don't really, seems like, don't care much for anything anymore. Don't care for property, don't care for people, definitely don't care about God. If you don't see that, you are living with your head in the sand. There's debate whether ostriches really do that or not. But that's how the story goes. three main parts to verse 9. As the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Abide in my love. We have love declared that I have loved you. Wonderful words to hear, aren't they, from someone that they love you? I mean, they mean it, right? Sometimes when you're new to the faith and another man, brother in Christ, tells you that he loves you, at first, it's a little, you don't know how to take it at first. But then you get used to it. And you're like, oh, okay, this is all right. But when someone really loves you, or think of the love that we can have for one another that is expressed in care and concern. These words here, this love from God, how much more powerful and wonderful as these words are spoken from the Son of God towards us as children of God. 
the recipients. Jesus says, I have loved you. This is astonishing considering who we are as individuals. This is indeed striking. There is nothing in me that would make God love me, yet he chose to love me anyway. Same with those of you. We are sinners, he is holy, yet Jesus loves his children. So there's love declared, then there's love measured. The love that has existed within the Godhead from all eternity, as I just mentioned, that will exist for all eternity, is how the Father loves the Son, and as Jesus describes how he loves us. This is how it is measured, if we could even use that phrase for his love. And then there's love remaining. Abide in my love. Continue on. That's the responsibility. Continue on in his love. As God's love for the, for the child of God does not change. Our love for other people changes, does it not? May, maybe increases at times, maybe decreases at times, maybe completely goes away. Our love towards God changes as Christians, does it not? Our love for God is supposed to grow as we are sanctified. And then at times, we're not showing much love to God, are we? But our responsibility is to remain in Him, in His love. So it is a redemptive love. It's also, fifthly, a reinforced love. A reinforced love. Verse 10. We have another if statement. If you keep my commandments, you will abide or you will remain in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. So we think, how did Jesus keep the Father's commandments? He did that perfectly. Perfectly. And He abides in his love perfectly. Jesus never sinned. Jesus is God. He is the God-man. So how can we, how can this comparison by, by Jesus here, how can we reconcile that? Well, we can't keep his commandments perfectly. Never have, never will. If someone ever says that they keep his commandments perfectly, you might as well rebuke them gently. And if they keep on, you probably should turn and go the other way unless they're open to the gospel. We can never keep his commandments perfectly, yet he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. How can this comparison be? When we consider Jesus, who kept them perfectly, because of amazing grace. Because of Jesus' passive and active obedience on our behalf. Because he knew no sin, he became sin for us. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Keeping his commandments. We see this repeated over and over again. We consider that as a Christian. Keep his commands. Are they burdensome? Are they dull? Well, 1 John 5, 3 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. 
and his, his commandments are not burdensome. And Jesus says in Matthew 11, For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So we see the, the if-then statement. If we keep his commandments, we will abide in his love. We say, how can we? We cannot. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. God's grace as we walk and seek to walk holy and worthy of the calling for which we have been called. But we need to be reminded, Jesus reminds us, if you love me, obey my commands. This is part of the remaining in him. This is part of the responsibility of the Christian. If you love me, obey my commands, chapter 14, verse 15. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me, chapter 14, verse 21. If anyone loves me, he will obey my teachings, chapter 14, verse 23. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, 15, verse 10. You are my friends if you do what I commanded you. Chapter 15, verse 14. So there is no wiggle room there. We are called to obey Jesus Christ. And he says, just as I have done, our model for living, our pattern to follow. So we have that reinforced love. And then we have refreshing joy. So remaining or removing. Reassuring communication we have with God. We represent royalty, the redemptive love that is shown only towards a child of God, reinforced love, and we have refreshing joy. Verse 11. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. True joy, as the Christian knows, true joy never can be found in the world can never be found in this world. We've tried it. We've been there. We've done that. We've got the t-shirts galore as we have tried. It cannot be found. Pleasure for a season? Absolutely. True joy? Not going to happen. Only in Christ. The world says you can have this and have this and have this. It doesn't amount to a hill of beans in the end. True joy found in Jesus. He says that His joy may be in us. The goal, His Word spoken to us, is the joy that is in us. These things, He says, I have spoken to you. Again, pointing back to the Word of God. We say, well, how can I have joy as a Christian? Well, first we go back to the Word of God and we go to prayer and then go from there. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you. And that, another action, your joy may be made full. Psalm 19, verse 8, don't turn there. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. As Christians, we can have so much joy because of who Christ is and because of where we are going. Does that mean we're always going to be walking around with a smile on our face? Absolutely not. Especially before coffee. Not going to happen in the morning or in the afternoon. But we have joy. And joy is available to us as Christians. We are bound for the promised land. 
We are not to be glory hogs in this world. You know what that is? Like a showboat, glory hog. We are, to, we are glory bound for the age to come. Glory bound for the age to come. I'll keep laughing. I'll keep going laughing. I don't want to do that. There is a joy available now in Christ that we have. Yeah, we don't always live like it, do we? And we don't always feel that joy, if I can use that word, or experience that joy. There's times of pain. There's times of sorrow. Yet we always have that joy in Christ available to us. And there is this joy that has a focus on the age to come as well. We have joy now as Christians. We can have joy as Christians. And then there is a joy that is for the age to come. The focus. Isaiah 29, verse 25, verse 9. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited, that He might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice, there's our key word, rejoice and be glad in His salvation. We ought to rejoice and be glad in His salvation now and for where we are going, brother and sister. And Isaiah 35, verse 10, And the ransom of the Lord will return and and come with joyful shouting to Zion, with everlasting joy upon their heads. They will find gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. And one more from Isaiah. I'll read this for us, 61. You don't need to turn there. You can write it down if you'd like. 61 in verse 10. As Isaiah says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God. There's a, a verse for memorization there. There's a verse to wake up and say, I don't know what to pray, and I'm in a sour mood, and I don't even want to smile, and I'm angry, or whatever it is. Well, go to Isaiah 61, verse 10. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for He has clothed me with garments of salvation. Brother and sister in Christ, you are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Clothed with His robes. Your garments that you used to wear have been cast off. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels, for as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes the things sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up all before the nations. Perfect joy has come, and it's found in Christ, and is coming finally in the age to come, when we are with Christ. The joy of Jesus, a joy that rejoices in hardship, is to be the joy for the Christian. I was reading something recently. There's a quote recently by Jeff Johnson, I think, and it's from social media, and it's on my phone. I don't have my phone in my pocket, so I can't recite it. But it's something along the lines like this. The, and someone prayed something along these lines this morning. As far as the disunity we can have as Christians, or the things we can disagree with one another as believers, even within a local church, or how we can, we, we can mistreat one another as Christians within a local church, and we see that we're going on, going on our lives, persecution comes, guess what? All that stuff that was happening before will purify the church and will be no longer. 
And if that is what it, it must happen for unity, and God sees it best for that to happen, for the pure purity of the church, he knows what's best. Joy. True joy found in Christ. Rejoicing in hardships. Psalm 16, verse 8 and 9. I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand and I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. There's a shotgun scripture for when you're going into a situation right there. And in Hebrews 12 uh, chapter 12, verse 2, our, our model, our, our Savior, the Lord, the Christ, fixing our eyes on Him, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him has endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy that was set before Him, our Savior, our King. And for the Christian, it's a joy that does not always remain in our lives. We understand that. David prayed, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Restore to me, he prays, the joy of what? The joy of salvation. If something to be restored means that it's missing, or something needs to be done, right? You go to restore a house or whatever, it need, it's in bad shape. Or restore a car or whatever, it needs to be uh, spiffy once again. We think about that. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Is this true for any of us this morning? Do we need restoration? Do we need the renewed joy of the salvation that He has given us? Turn to Him and ask Him of this. In a moment, we will transition to the Lord's table. As Christians, we participate in this means of grace provided with the Lord's table. We do so with joy and we do so with a, a heart that needs to be continually examined before God. Let me pray and then we will go to the Lord's table. I'll ask the men when I'm praying, when I'm finished praying, to go ahead and come up and, and sit, please. Father, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for these reminders of your love that you have shown us, this love you have bestowed upon us, a love that is redemptive, a love that is reinforced, and you have given us joy in our hearts that we can sing praises to you you have given us a new, a new song in our, in our mouths, a new song in our hearts. You've given us refreshing joy. We pray that you would indeed continue to do that. For if we are sour in spirit this morning, wherever we are, Lord, individually, whatever our struggles may be, as we come to your table, we're reminded of who you are, God, and what you have done for us. And we thank you and we give you glory. In Jesus' name.